Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 121 The Dungeons and Dragons B series of modules. We're going to get into this week's dive into another series of D&D modules momentarily, but before we do that, I wanted to remind everyone that Archon 46 starts today. As many of you might have already noticed, I recorded a supplemental piece that released today to get into greater detail about what's going on, but I wanted to take a moment to let everyone know that we will be there all weekend long, so drop by the game room and see us. For all the information on what's going on this weekend at Archon 46, check out their website, A-R-C-H-O-N-S-T-L dot org. So I'm looking forward to seeing all of you there, but I'm also excited to get into this week's show, so let's get the tour bus cranked up and get to it. The B-series of modules was released between 1978 and 1989, and they were all built for use with the D&D Basic Set. Now, for those who aren't exactly aware of what I'm talking about, when TSR did a new edition of the game in the late 70s, which we all now know as first edition AD&D, they made a split into two game lines, the aforementioned AD&D and D&D, with D&D being for entry-level players and AD&D being, as the title implied, for more experienced players. And as we hit on last week, there were four different boxes, each of increasing difficulty. Now, I said all of that to get to this. The B series of modules were all created for use with the basic set, which old school gamers will remember as that iconic red box. In fact, the B stands for basic, so I guess that really should have been a no-brainer for me. So let's start our tour of the series with the very first entry. B1, In Search of the Unknown, was written by Mike Carr and released by TSR in 1978. It was created to be the module included in the first edition of the basic set, but eventually it got released on its own. In Search of the Unknown checks in at 32 pages with an outer folder and a two-color cover. And it should be noted that the first version had a section on using the module with the AD&D game, though that was removed for later versions and printings. David C. Sutherland III handled the interior art for this initial release, and he and David Trampier did the cover, which was a monochrome. For the 1981 reprint, the cover art credit goes to Darlene Pecule. Over its history, In Search of the Unknown got six printings, and as one would gather from that, it was one of the more popular modules in the history of the D&D sets. And fun fact, the copyright on that first printing is noted as 1979, but it had actually been released the year before. That's one of those TSR quirks that seems to pop up from time to time. Also, if you caught last week's show, I mentioned the limited edition 10th anniversary box that TSR released in 1984. In Search of the Unknown was one of the modules chosen for inclusion in that set. And one more piece of historical background here before we move on. You might remember me talking about this during both the TSR and D&D shows I did, God, two years ago. But for those who might have missed it, well... First off, you need to check them out in the archives. Second, anyway, in 1977, D&D co-creator Dave Arneson sued TSR for royalties on the basic set. 
I'm not going to dive into a lot of detail here, but the argument TSR was making, which means the argument Gary Gygax was making, is that Arneson didn't deserve royalties from D&D because it was different from AD&D and therefore different than what he'd helped create. Total bullshit argument, so TSR changed tactics. See, when the basic set was first released, it had a couple of different supplements in it. Dungeon Geomorphs and the Monster and Treasure Assortment. When Arneson sued the company and their initial argument didn't work, they took those out and started including In Search of the Unknown. TSR's reasoning was that Mike Carr was a close friend of Arneson's and TSR was betting that he wouldn't want to take 5% out of his friend's pocket. For the record, a 5% royalty on the entirety of the basic set is what Arneson was suing for. While Arneson ultimately got his money, Carr also made bank off of this arrangement, since by the end of 1979, the basic set was moving more than 30,000 copies a month, and the numbers continued to rise from there. Now, I've badmouthed TSR and Gary Gygax a lot on this show over the past two years, but I think what happened next deserves a little bit of badmouthing. Once they saw how much money Carr was getting, especially since he got to double dip his royalties with the module also being sold on its own, the decision was made to swap out In Search of the Unknown for Gygax's module Keep on the Borderlands. And feel about that however you'd like. Getting back to the module at hand, when we look at the intended setting, In Search of the Unknown is technically a setting-neutral adventure, though many writers and players have noted over the last 40 years that there were suggestions in that initial printing that the setting was Greyhawk, but the five following printings removed those suggestions to ensure a setting-neutral game. In Search of the Unknown was built for entry-level characters and designed to get them to level 3. Mike Carr stated multiple times over the years that he intentionally wrote the adventure to be an instructional adventure, both for players and for DMs, and there was advice in the modules for DMs for creating their own dungeons. Not a lot of advice, but enough to get the ball rolling. One example of the advice given to DMs is the fact that DMs were allowed and encouraged, if I'm being honest, to add their own monsters and treasures to the adventure. When you take a more in-depth look at the module, you notice just how novice-targeted it is. There's a rather lengthy introduction that lays out how the adventure works and gives both players and DMs some tips for playing it. In fact, there are 48 pre-generated first-level characters included so that newbies could just grab a character sheet and start playing. The DMs also got a chance to get their feet wet in the creative aspects as there were a number of unkeyed rooms and caves that they could fill in with their own options and there were tables provided to help with that move. So we've talked history. What's the adventure about? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. The idea is that a long time ago, but not in a galaxy far, far away. Two wealthy adventurers built a hidden complex they named the Caverns of Quakatan. I think I got that pronunciation right. They used it as their base of operations from which they could do whatever they wanted and needed to do while avoiding those pesky members of civilization that might ask questions they didn't want to answer. By the start of the adventure, they're long since gone, and the players have heard rumors about those caverns, and the text provides a list of rumors, with the idea being the DM can decide which characters know which ones, if any of them. 
The adventure as a whole is pretty straightforward from there. The group makes their way to the cavern, explores their way through it, dealing with the monsters and picking up treasure along the way, and it ends with them finding the level where the two creators of the facility lived, which provides for more treasure and trap challenges for the group to overcome. Again, a pretty straightforward adventure for brand new players and DMs. Don Turnbull reviewed it for the June-July 1979 issue of White Dwarf Magazine. He gave it an overall rating of 9 out of 10 and complimented it for its, quote, excellent format, for instance, and the comprehensive way in which the scenario is introduced. TSR's high quality has not been in any way compromised, end quote. His one major complaint was that the module uses Roman numerals as references, as he noted, quote, ordinary numbers do the job much better, end quote. 1979 brought the release of Module B2, The Keep on the Borderlands. Written by Gary Gygax, it had cover art from Jim Roslov and interiors from Errol Otis. And much like In Search of the Unknown, it was available as a solo release as well as in the basic set, which it was included in from 1979 to 1982. Its initial printing also noted that it could be modified to be used with AD&D, though again, that note was removed from all subsequent printings. Now, the Keep on the Borderlands has a very interesting print history. I mentioned last week that it was a part of the limited edition 10th anniversary box TSR did in 1984, and by 1985 it was basically out of print, but it is the module that refused to die. Pieces of the adventure made their way into the 1985 super module, B1 through 9, In Search of Adventure, though it was pretty much just the Caves of Chaos that were included. The original Froll version was also reprinted and included in the Dungeons & Dragons Silver Anniversary Collector's Edition box set that was released in 1999 for the 25th anniversary. But we have to note that there were some subtle adjustments made for that release in order to make it a must-have. You know, for the collectors out there. It got a sequel in 1999, Return to the Keep on the Borderlands, and while the original was setting neutral, the sequel was clearly set in Greyhawk. We'll do a review of this one another time, but let's just say that the adjustments for the sequel caused a lot of continuity errors overall. Wizards of the Coast released a novelization of the adventure in 2001. It was titled Keep on the Borderlands, and it too was set in Greyhawk. Our friends at Kenzerco did a hacked version of the adventure in 2005, creating Little Keep on the Borderlands for Hackmaster. Oh, and a big hello to Jolly Blackburn, who I haven't shouted out in a very long time. In September of 2010, Wizards of the Coast updated the adventure to 4th edition and dropped it into their weekly D&D encounters. They retitled it Keep on the Borderlands A Season of Serpents, and this version was also intended to be used with a boxed set, which in this case was the 4th edition beginner's box called Dungeons & Dragons Fantasy Role-Playing Game. The adventure got torched by players and reviewers, and Wizards quietly let it go back out of print. However, they went back on their word, sort of. In January of 2012, another revised edition, this time for 5th edition, was used as a playtest at the D&D Expo. Now, there's not a whole lot known about this, as anyone who played it had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. And I haven't found anyone online who decided to test how serious Wizards was about that a decade after the fact. 
2016 saw Brazilian publisher Redbox Editora do their own translation and release. They titled it O Forte das Terras Maginas, and it was part of their retro clone system of Old Dragon. Rafael Beltram handled the translations for the release. Finally, our friends at Goodman Games entered into an agreement with Wizards of the Coast in 2017 to produce collector's editions of a number of classic adventures in the old TSR line, and Into the Borderlands was released in May of 2018 as the first adventure in the line. It checks in at 380 pages and has full digital scans of the original module, a full set of conversions for 5th edition, some interesting new content, and testimonials from many of those who were part of the creative process, plus those from the present creative team. If you're interested, I know you can get a copy of this at most game stores, so drop in and check it out. And if they don't have it, just ask them to order it for you, and I bet even money they will. So that's a lot of prints of the module over the years, and many of you are probably wondering why there was so much attention given to this one module when we've seen, and will continue to see throughout this episode, that other modules in the line didn't get quite as much love. One word, nostalgia. See, for me, this was the adventure that was included when I bought my copy of the basic set. So it's the first published adventure I ever ran. And I ran it a lot over the first couple of years. I got to the point at that time that I could run it without ever needing to open it. So as the years progressed and I moved on to other editions and other modules, my curiosity would always get piqued when I'd see a new version come out. I mean, hell, I dropped 40 bucks on a Humble Bundle a couple of weeks ago just to get the Goodman's Game version of this, which wound up not being a part of the Humble Bundle, so joke was on me. And look, I know I'm not the only one who feels like this. So yeah, nostalgia for that first adventure is what keeps it coming back for more. Now, the funny thing, and it's almost sacrilegious to say this, is that it's not an overly complex adventure. Much like In Search of the Unknown, it was fully intended to be a first for both players and DMs, and it included many of the same tips and suggestions that that release had. It also had something that wasn't in the basic set, rules for wilderness adventures. Now, the rules that were there were pretty basic, but it's better to have some rules than no rules, right? The basics of the adventure are this. The characters arrive at the keep itself, and they can use it as a base of operations while they check out a series of caverns in the hills nearby that have all kinds of monsters for them to kill. Of course, Gygax didn't make it that easy, as there's also a priest who's not nearly as holy as he appears to be, a mad hermit out in the wilderness, and lizard men in the swamp who want to put humans back on the menu. Again, it's nothing overly complex, and it's typical of Gygax's dungeon crawl style of adventure. That being said, there's enough here to take a party from first level to third level. Anders Svensson handled the review for the June-July 1980 issue of Different Worlds magazine and said, quote, It is well-balanced and suitable for the levels of characters for which it was written. D&D is a good introductory set of adventure gaming rules, and the Keep on the Borderlands is a good introduction to D&D. End quote. One more note here, The Keep on the Borderlands was voted the 7th greatest D&D adventure of all time by Dungeon Magazine in 2004. So before I get into the next module on our list today, I did want to point out that there are a couple on here that we've covered in past episodes. I included them this week because I wanted to cover the line in full, so I tried to make sure I changed things up a bit from when I covered them previously. 
And I'm sure this isn't going to be the last time I do that, as there are a lot more module lines to cover in the future. Also, moving forward this week, we're going to assume the adventure was written for characters level 1 through 3, unless I state otherwise, as that was the target for pretty much all these modules. Next up is a module that came with a bit of controversy, at least at first. B3, Palace of the Silver Princess, is the module in question, and I have to get into the history of the release before I give out any more information. In 1980, the only woman in TSR's design department, Jean Wells, drew the assignment to create an adventure for the B series of modules. It was noted both internally and externally that this would be the first TSR adventure created by a female designer, and Wells took her assignment seriously. She worked almost hand-in-hand -hand with her editor, Ed Sollers, to make sure every decision she made concerning the module would meet the standards expected. She also followed Mike Carr's example from In Search of the Unknown and left some areas of the module unfinished so that DMs could fill them in themselves. Again, we're talking about a series of modules for new players and DMs, so this was a positive thing. In a 2010 interview she did for Save or Die, she explained, quote, I was trying to show the players that there was more to a dungeon than just the building. I didn't complete the palace, trying to show them this map could be a mini base map for their game. The players could discover the part of the dungeon that had been caved in, and it wasn't any longer, and the DM could expand on it. End quote. So far, so good, right? <laughs> well, we're, here's where things begin to go to shit. Towards the end of the editing process, Wells noticed that some of the artwork wasn't what she'd expected it to be. Errol Otis had taken the three-headed monsters she'd created and called Ubus and instead made them hermaphrodites with the heads of TSR staffers. She wanted to change it, but she was informed that it was too late to do so due to the printing delays it would cause. And that's where the proverbial rubber met the road. The night before release day, somebody in the upper management of TSR got a look at the artwork in the module and got pissed. Who that was and exactly what it was that got to them has been a matter of conjecture for more than 40 years, but there are two pieces that seem to have been the culprits, at least according to various TSR employees who've spoken about it over the years. The illusion of the Decapis was drawn by Laura Ralsoff, and it depicted a woman tied up by her own hair and being tortured by demonic-looking figures. Now, many said that this piece caused concern due to the satanic panic at the time, but others within the company have argued that this piece was no worse than stuff that Larry Elmore or Jeff Easley had done for both D&D and AD&D. And if you've seen their work from this period, you're going to probably agree with that statement. That leaves the piece that a huge majority of TSR employees have pointed to, and that's Otis's hermaphroditic monster with the heads of TSR staffers on it. Now, nobody's ever really said who the staffers were supposed to be who were depicted, but everyone seems to agree that this was the piece that caused the most distress amongst the brass. So, they responded by ordering the entire print run to be destroyed. That meant somewhere between five and 10,000 modules were taken off the market. Everything that had been shipped to stores was recalled. Staff members who had copies on or in their desks found them removed. I mean, TSR tried to erase every copy in existence out, but they failed. The reason for that is that there were a few TSR employees who'd taken their copies home with them, and they've survived in some form for all these years. Now, 
In the collector's world, this version of the module is known as the orange version, since the cover design used the color orange. And while nobody knew what the plot of the adventure was for years, you can get a PDF of it on the official Wizards website. Or at least you could as of a year or so ago. I gotta be honest, I was too busy working out the episode to take a look, so let me know if you still can. The final resting place for the modules was a landfill in Lake Geneva. So if you're really looking to find a copy, good hunting to you. So for those of you who wonder why I ripped TSR so much, consider this to be Exhibit A. Anyway, the release wound up being delayed as Tom Moldvay was tapped to rewrite the module, which he did almost completely. He did keep the Archer Bush Wells had created, but he made some minor changes. That's about it for Wells' original creation in this new version, though she did get a writer's credit for the module, which meant she got a cut of the residuals. It should also be noted that four pieces of artwork that had been deemed controversial were removed, including the two I noted a moment ago. This new version was released in 1981 and has a green cover on it, and that's what it's known as in the collector's world, the green version. So let's break down the basic plot of Palace of the Silver Princess. It involves legends of a ruined palace, a white dragon, and a giant ruby. It also involves a country frozen in time, and that's tied to the ruby. That means the goal for our adventurers is to solve the mystery about time being frozen, unfreeze it, and set things back the way they're supposed to be. Jim Bambra handled the review for the November 1982 issue of White Dwarf. He gave it a rare 10 out of 10 rating and called it, quote, an excellent introduction to the game for new DMs and players being fairly simple to complete and play, end quote. He praised Moldvay for the glossary included that explained the unfamiliar terms included within the adventure. He also called for Palace of the Silver Princess to replace the keep on the Borderlands in the D&D basic set. By the way, going back to my comment on a very few number of the orange versions surviving the purge, they do pop up from time to time for sale. The highest price one has fetched was a copy signed by Gene Wells, and it sold for nearly $5,900 US. The highest price without a signature on it was a bit over three grand in 2008, and for the collectors out there, it was graded in very fine, slight warp condition. Every once in a while, one will become available, still in the shrink wrap, but you can expect to see an asking price somewhere between $1,300 and $1,500 US. So let's leave the controversy behind and check out the next module in the line. B5, Horror on the Hill, was released in 1983. Written by Douglas Niles, with cover art from Jim Rosloff and interior art from Jim Holloway, this module checked in at 32 pages with an outer folder. It should also be noted that the adventure had 11 maps, 3 new monsters, and a complete set of pre-generated characters. I think they called them pre-rolled characters at the time, but I'm going with the term we use today so you know where I'm coming from. Horror on the Hill sold well at the time of its release and for a period afterwards, but it's been out of print since the mid-1980s, and nobody's picked up on it for a reprint as of now, so we don't have one of those long history sections for this entry. Sorry about that, it just kind of goes that way sometimes. Horror on the Hill takes our characters to Guido's Fort, which is located at the end of a road and has the River Shill dividing it from what's called the Hill. When the PCs arrive, there's multiple groups of adventurers making their plans to storm the hill to take out the monsters that are rumored to be there and snatch up the treasure. 
There are also rumors that an evil witch lives there, but since nobody who's tried the hill before has ever come back, eh, nobody knows for sure. So our characters head up, take on the monsters, and ultimately find out that the big bad evil guy is actually a young red dragon, which makes for a rather interesting final battle, if I may say so myself. Chris Hunter handled the review in the May 1984 issue of Imagine Magazine. He knocked the quality of the surface map of the hill, as well as pointing out errors in the text, specifically as it pertained to differences between what was stated in the text and what was shown on the maps. Overall, he called the module, quote, balanced and logical, end quote. In conclusion, he stated, quote, apart from the hill map and the awful title, Horror on the Hill is a worthwhile addition to the basic scenario range, end quote. Next up is B6, The Veiled Society. Written by Zeb Cook with cover art from Steve Chappell and interiors from Jim Rosloff, the module checks in at 16 pages with an outer folder, as well as cardstock miniatures and 16 pages of fold-together pieces that produce nine cutout houses and a cutout gate. So, you get some miniature-based stuff along with your adventure, which I have to admit is pretty darn cool. While the plot of the adventure is pretty basic, the opportunities for deep roleplay separate the Veiled Society from the majority of the rest of the entries on today's show. The entire adventure takes place in the city of Specularum and finds the group investigating a murder to figure out which of the three rival factions in the city are responsible. The group will find themselves in a continuous struggle between those factions, and this is where the roleplay has a chance to shine. Graham Staplehurst agreed with some of what I just said in his review for the March 1985 issue of White Dwarf. First off, he gave it a 9 out of 10 overall and said it had, quote, all the hallmarks of a classic adventure in spite of the useless cutouts, end quote. Insofar as the adventure itself was concerned, he said the city of Specularum, quote, provides players with almost unparalleled opportunity for personal choice and freedom for action, end quote, and called it, quote, true role gaming, and high drama, end quote. Rahasia is the next module on our list, designated B7. It was originally written by Laura Hickman and published by Daystar West Media in 1979 as a 32-page adventure booklet. For those who missed my four-episode run on the best modules of all time, I noted this in that episode, though the entry was for a different module. Daystar was the publishing company owned by Tracy Hickman, and it published less than 200 copies of this adventure. So when the Hickmans were ultimately forced to shut down Daystar and work for TSR, they brought Rahasia with them. They rewrote it from the original, and TSR published it in 1983 under the code RPGA1. This version checked in at 16 pages with an outer folder and is considered to be a collector's item as it was only available to members of the role-playing guild of America. In 1984, TSR once again had the Hickmans revise Rahasia, only this time they also had them work up Black Opal Eye, which had been the module coded RPGA2. The two were combined and released under the B7 designation in 1984. This version checked in at 32 pages with an outer folder. Jeff Eastley did the cover art while Tim Truman worked with Eastley on the interiors. Now, the adventure goes like this. There's an elven village being threatened by a dark priest known as the Rahib. He's got two of the village's fairest maidens being held captive, and he wants the fairest maiden of them all, Rahasia. 
She sent messages all across the land looking for help, and it's our group that answers the call. They need to enter an old temple, get access to the wizard's tower ruins below it, and take out the priest and save the kidnapped elves. Wayne Ligon reviewed Rahasia for the March-April 1985 issue of The Space Gamer. He said, quote, A nice story combined with an interesting temple complex makes this module a good one. The villains are well portrayed and have definite objectives. End quote. He also noted that the emphasis of the adventure is more on thinking and less on killing, which made it a much more interesting adventure to run. B8, Journey to the Rock, is next. And... Yeah, I was trying to decide if I was going to do Sean Connery or Dwayne Johnson for that, but I decided you'd appreciate it if I didn't do either one. You are welcome. Written by Michael Malone with cover art by Larry Elmore, Journey to the Rock was released in 1985 and checks in at 32 pages with an outer folder. Now, this is another module that was allowed to go out of print fairly quickly. So again, the history isn't quite as long and glorious as with some of the others on this list, but it was a decent seller in its time. And like the other entries on the show today, it's not an overly complex adventure. The wizard Lurdrium Akyaz wants the secrets of the rock, and he hires the group to uncover them. They've got choices to make and encounters to have before they get there and figure out what's next. Journey to the Rock is a wilderness scenario, and there are wilderness adventuring rules included in the module, so DMs and players once again get some new rules to add to their game. Wendy J. Rose handled the review for the September 1985 issue of Imagine. Overall, she gave it a positive review, but when you read the review, it's also obvious she wasn't exactly wowed by it. She called the plot, quote, sound if unoriginal, end quote, and also ripped the quality of the production, noting it was, quote, rough in places, end quote. She also hit on rules repetition and stilted English. However, she loved the role-playing opportunities presented and called it overall a, quote, goodbye, end quote. We're up to B9, and that designation goes to Castle Caldwell and beyond. Written by Harry W. Knuckles, with cover art from Clyde Caldwell and interior art from Doug Watson, it checked in at 32 pages when it was published in 1985. Castle Caldwell and Beyond is rather unique in the B-series, as rather than being one longish adventure, it's actually five short scenarios, and only two of those are connected. The other three are intended to be standalone. The clearing of Castle Caldwell has the characters clearing out a castle at the behest of its new owner. Dungeons of Terror picks up where the clearing of Castle Caldwell left off, and the characters find a trapdoor in the castle that leads to a dungeon that they get trapped in. So they're stuck until they work through the dungeon and find their way out. The next three are the standalones. The abduction of Princess Sylvia has the group infiltrating the base of a group of kidnappers who swiped Princess Sylvia just before her marriage to the prince of a neighboring realm. Oh, and the kidnappers don't want the wedding to happen because it will bring peace between the two realms involved. The Great Escape sees our characters start as prisoners of an enemy army. They have to escape, collect their gear, and clear out the outpost. The Sanctuary of Elwyn the Ardent sends the group after a legendary holy artifact. Elwyn the Ancient has it, and the group needs to get it from them. Reviews for Castle Caldwell and Beyond were mostly meh, so I'm not including one in this show. Alright, so I wanted to shift gears for just a moment and hit the next release in this line, though it's not so much a new module as a compilation of the nine I just reviewed. In Search of Adventure was released in 1987, and it collects parts and portions of each of the previous nine modules in the line. 
It also lays out a basic framework to hang all of those parts on to run a long scale campaign if you're so inclined. Jeff Grubb and John Pickens are the credited editors for the project and it clocked in at a hefty 160 pages at its release. No review for this as we can refer back to the reviews from the other modules to get a feel for what writers thought about this release. So let's get back into the original releases in the line. B10 Night's Dark Terror was released in 1986. Written by Jim Bambra, Graham Morris, and Phil Gallagher, it was a 64-page booklet, a map, and a cardstock countersheet contained within two outer folders. It should be noted that the creative team for Night's Dark Terror came out of the TSR UK office, and it's the only module in this line to come out of the UK. It's also the only module in the line to be for groups level 2 through 4. The reasoning for that is that the creators considered it to be a special basic expert transition module, which could be used to move characters from the basic set to the expert set. Brian Williams handled the cover art while Helen Bedford got the duties for the interiors. Night's Dark Terror is another wilderness scenario, and it has our group of intrepid adventurers working down a river, then up through the mountains, covering about 20,000 square miles during their travels, and have the Iron Ring Secret Society giving them hell throughout. Eleven new monsters were included in the module, and new rules for handling weather were provided in the book as well. Lawrence Schick has the most concise review I found, and his words summarize what the majority of the others had to say. In his 1991 book, Heroic Worlds, he stated the adventure is, quote, an outstanding wilderness scenario that bridges the gap between the D&D basic and expert rules, end quote. We've got three more items in the B-series, so let's keep rolling. B-11, King's Festival, was released in 1989. Written by Carl Sargent, with cover art from Clyde Caldwell and interior art from Valerie Valhasek. Sorry about that. King's Festival checked in at 32 pages with an outer folder. Set in Karamaikos in the mysterious setting, the adventure itself is pretty simple. The group is tasked with rescuing a cleric from a group of orcs to ensure the King's Festival takes place. King's Festival is at least as much about how it was presented as what was actually presented. It's laid out in a very simple manner, streamlined to allow for first-time DMs to be able to walk through it fairly easily. It's also got staging hints and advice for those DMs, so that's a bonus as well. Pre-generated PCs are included, and while that seems to be the standard for this line, the pull-out combat sequence table that's included in here is not. I found precisely one review for King's Festival, and it came from Dragon Magazine, and you know how I feel about using reviews for Dragon for D&D product. However, I did check out comments from players and DMs online who'd actually played this, and they noted that while the adventure was pretty basic, the layout and style was pretty cool, so we're going to take that for what it is. B-12 Queen's Harvest was also released in 1989. It's the sequel to King's Festival and in fact picks up where that one left off. Carl Sargent again gets writer credit and Clyde Caldwell and Valerie Valisek are the credited artists. This go around, the group has to go grab the objects a wizard left behind when he died. These objects are believed to be dangerous, ergo they can't be allowed to fall into the wrong hands. The adventure takes place both in a dungeon and an enemy stronghold, as of course the wizard didn't leave his shit unguarded. 
I've got the same issue with the review for this entry as the last one, and I didn't find any online comments from players. So if you've played this one, hit me up and let me know what you think. The last entry for the show is definitely a unique one. B-S-O-L-O, that's right, B-Solo, Ghost of Lion Castle, was written by Merle M. Rasmussen and released in 1984. It checked in at 32 pages with an outer folder. Okay, so you heard the solo part of the code, and while the OG gamers in the crowd know what that means, some of the new schoolers out there are probably curious. There was a time that TSR published solo adventures for the D&D line. So, yeah, you could play a D&D game by yourself and have a cool adventure. Granted, not nearly as much fun as playing with a group, but if you didn't have a group, you could still play. Solo adventures work a lot like choose-your-own-adventure books do, in that the player makes all of the decisions, and there are multiple paths the adventure can go based on each decision. Ghost of Lion Castle is intended for beginning-level characters, and while six pre-generated ones are provided, players can create their own if they'd like, though the maximum level is three, and there is a modified spell list the character would need to be using. The character is also given 12 days worth of rations at the start of the adventure, along with maps of the main walls and hallways of Lion Castle. The adventure involves the character working through the castle, which was once owned by a powerful wizard who has long since passed away. He, uh, he hasn't left, though. He's a ghost, and he's haunting the castle in search of an heir. So the character has to outthink and outwit the ghost, plus get out of the castle in order to succeed. I'm not going to include a review for this final entry on today's show, mostly because I don't think reviewers got the point of solo modules, so I'm not going to give them the time of day. So with that, we've come to the end of today's tour. So next week, you know what? I think we'll do another line of D&D modules next week. And the reason for that is that I'd had three lines I was researching for this week's show, and I used most of this week getting ready for Archon. So one more week of modules, and you'll find out what series we're covering next time. In the meantime, check out Bad GM's campaign build along. Our Fallout game is coming right along, though this week we're just about at the point where the big bad evil person for the campaign is about to become apparent, and their group's going to have a lot of work to do. Bad GM's campaign build-along is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Role-Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. We're all over social media, so check out the info box for this episode or the website, badgmproductions.net. So, for those coming to Archon 46, I'll see you at some point this weekend. For everybody else, I'll catch you next week when we break down more D&D modules. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're role-playing history.